Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM. Fight of my life with Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver on Talk Sport. Hello there, you're listening to Talk Sport. This is Fight of My Life with me, Russ Williams, and him, Spencer Oliver. Great show lined up for you tonight if you're a boxing fan. Spencer, how are you doing? Yeah, Russ, always good, my friend, you? As well as can be expected, I'm so looking forward to the next hour. Over the course of the programme, we're going to be speaking to a former boxer about the defining fight of their career, the build-up, the story behind it the aftermath, and in the case of the fight we're going to talk about tonight, there was some aftermath, oh boy. And on today's show, this man. Well, Johnny Nelson comes to the ring tonight in search of boxing Boxing redemption. They will have to carry me out of this ring for me to not work out a winner. Here is a man who was slaughtered by the press and effectively driven into exile. I saw the good and bad side of human nature. I saw how fickle people could be, how mean they could be, how cruel they could be. So inept and embarrassing were his two previous world title challenges. When you're boxing, everybody has an opinion. Everybody tells you what you did wrong or how rubbish you were. 32, his third chance to become a world champion certainly his last chance. I knew that it was my time. Well, I hope that's whetted your appetite before we hear from the entertainer, Johnny Nelson Spencer. What fight are we going to be talking about today? And how do you sum up Johnny Nelson as a fighter? Russ, we're going to be talking about Johnny Nelson versus Cole the Cat Thompson. It was March the 27th, 1999. Johnny Nelson lifted the WBO Cruiserweight World title against all the odds, by the way. You know, Johnny, when he first turned pro, lost his first three fights, suffered with confidence. Brendan Ingle played a great part of changing Johnny's mindset to set him on the path to going on to win the World Cruiserweight title. It was an incredible journey, and I'm glad Johnny's going to share that with us today. And I'm equally glad that he's here to talk about the fight of his life on Talk Sport. It's a very warm welcome to you. This one was so important for you, Johnny, wasn't it? Because if you hadn't have won this fight, you would have retired and gone into boxing oblivion. Uh, I think the headline somewhere was uh, no fourth chance. Basically, I said this was it. It was my last chance. I had two cracks at the world title. And uh, I knew uh, if I didn't get it on that night, I didn't deserve to have it because... 
the path I'd, I'd, I'd taken to get there, I had no excuses. I couldn't say I wasn't ready, I wasn't experienced enough, uh, I wasn't mature enough. I'd been through everything. So in my head, it was no fourth chance. I had to get a job. That was it. You know, this was, this was my living. And I was at an age where I, I got a chance because people probably thought I, I, I couldn't do it. I, I, I demanded that position because I fought to that position. There's, there's a thing in boxing, it's called you're in the who needs him club. And my style was never crash bang wallop like you know Ricky Hatton Mike Tyson Prince Nassim Hamid I was in that who needs him club so again there was everything stacked against me if I didn't win uh, that fight that I would never get a crack again so I knew that it just wasn't gonna happen it just wouldn't happen again so I as far as I was concerned that was mine I I, I deserved it I expected it. it nobody else thought that but in my head I expected it Johnny, your your last world title shot was in 1990 against Carlos de Leon. What did you take from that fight? That was because it was such a negative performance. It was always going to be difficult for you to get back on top, wasn't it? It took you another 25 fights before you got this world title shot. So, what did you take from that de Leon fight? Well, you know what? That was the best and worst uh, time of my life because at the time it was the worst because I saw the good and bad side of human nature. I saw how fickle people could be, how mean they could be, how cruel they could be. I realised that when you when you picked up a newspaper and there was a, a joke about an individual, that individual is someone's mother, brother, son, father, whatever. So when I saw that in, in national newspapers about me, and it hurt. Boxing's very funny because... When you're at work and your boss gives you a mouthful and tells you off, that's it, it's done and dusted. When you're boxing, everybody thinks that they're, they're your boss. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody tells you what you did wrong or how rubbish you were or or, or they, they'll give you some stick. And you've got to take it day after day after day after day. Every time I boxed after that, it was that's all that was mentioned. And I actually drew for the world title fight. I admit now, looking back, that... I was a boy in a man's body. And even if they'd have given me the decision, I'd have probably lost it, lost it in about my first or second defence because I could wasn't mentally mature enough to deal with the responsibility, what I know now is the responsibility of being a champion. And so so I look at the time when I won the title and then we'll look at my attempts, my, my two attempts before. It wasn't 1990, just 1990. Remember, I boxed for the IBF title after that. And I still wasn't over... The, the carnage of the Carlos de Leon fight in 1990. So mentally and emotionally, I just wasn't... I, I didn't deserve to, to, to be a world champion because I didn't understand what came with that responsibility. So the stick I got, the tribulation I got, the, 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 my head was done in. I was paranoid. But before I boxed de Leon, I actually wasn't bothered if I won or lost. You know, I was fighting five fights at a time. I thought, I'll pack in and get a proper job after this. Won a box to Leon because I had that much stick. And, and I mean, other promoters publicly would say, I'm not having Johnny Nelson on my bill. Uh, I'll stick the place out. And I basically was on the road for six, seven years in Germany, France, uh, all over Europe. But it was the best thing that could have happened because it then prepared me for my day of reckoning, which was uh, boxing Carl Thompson. Yeah, you got that opportunity to box Cole Thompson, 27th of March, 1999. So it's taken you a long time to get that opportunity. Cole Thompson had previously beaten Chris Eubanks twice prior to the fight. You was the underdog going in, Johnny. How did, how did that make you feel? Uh, it made me chuckle because I was. I suppose I was like the boy that cried wolf. I'd had two cracks at the world title before, talked the talk, couldn't walk the walk, got people to believe in me. So now my time has come, I'm talking the talk, but nobody believes me. I'm still that coward 
And that's what was classed as a coward. People didn't believe in what I could do or, or if I had it in me. But I knew, because I'd gone through every aspect any fighter could go through, I'd been a journeyman, I'd been a has-been, I'd been a loser, uh, I'd been mocked, and I'd won. So I'd been in every aspect. Plus, I spent most of my time on the road. I was out on the road where I was doing what fighters were, were not prepared to do, which, which was go away and be a sparring partner, learn your craft, learn your trade. Every day was like going into a fight. You were, you were doing this by yourself. Fighters don't do that today. Fighters, they don't, they're in a, an insular bubble where that works for them. And, and, and what I find was what's most important is not just working on your, your body physically, it's working on your mind mentally. Because if you don't believe in your tools, what you've got, and they don't match, you'll always be found wanting. So when it came to fighting Carl Thompson, and I was reading the newspapers and hearing what people were saying about me not having a chance or being the underdog, I actually smiled because... My silence said it all because I thought, and I'll win this. I don't actually depend on the, the opinions of others now because I've seen the nasty side of human nature. So when people mock me, I just brushed it off. I knew that it was my time. I was a fan of Carl Thompson's. I, I used to travel and watch him fight. This is even before I actually thought I'd have to fight him. I used to look at Carl Thompson and think, wow, what a warrior. I'd say to my mates, go on, let's go watch this guy here. And he was in some serious tears up. Unbelievable body of an Adonis. Guts of a lion. And this guy would get in a proper tear up. He, he had more bottle than I did. But the one thing I knew about Carl was he wore his heart on his sleeve. And that, to me, was a chink in his arm. I was fortunate enough to be with a, a trainer that, that, that taught us very, so much about uh, mental warfare as well as physical warfare. So that's one thing that really stood out to me. And it was very noticeable looking back on the fight, that Brendan Ingle, you're under his wing. We'll talk a lot more about Brendan, obviously, as the programme goes on, Johnny. But you made a conscious decision, didn't you, whether it was just you or the both of you, to get into the head of Carl Thompson. Share the story <laughs> about the nightclub and where Thompson's partner went to dance and what you did and how you really wound him up. Well, it was a bit naughty, and Brendan, he's an amazing teacher, Brendan, and Brendan would talk to us about philosophy, warmongers and, and, and uh, psychology, the history of our sport, and, and, he, and at the time you're thinking, why are you telling me this? But really he was grooming us in, a, in a, a positive way to make us be prepared for anything that happens, uh, that happens in the future coming on. So I knew then, he said, this guy... He wears his heart in his sleeve. Brendan spotted it. Where's his heart in his sleeve? You've got to get him to hate you. If he hates you, he's not going to be thinking about how many punches, what combinations he's got to throw round one, round two, round three, round four. He's not going to be thinking about taking his time. You've got to get under his skin. So this guy hates you. And it sounds barbaric, but I wanted him to want to kill me. This is how I wanted him to think. If you had an argument with your, your partner, and, and women are usually better than men, so we've got to give it to them. We can't think straight. We're not fast enough. We're not sharp enough. We're stuttering. We're, we can't get our words out until after the argument. And you think, damn it, I should have said this. And so your head's just not right. And so I've got to get him to that stage where he's not thinking about all the weeks of training, all the things he's, he just wants to batter me. So I've got to get him mad. So I, I was seeing a girl years before Carl and I boxed. And... Um, and she lived in Warrington. 
and uh, a new car lived over this side of town, so it all, all moulds into one. And she said, there's a guy over there, he says that he, he, he knows you, he's a boxer. So I looked on the dance floor and Carl Thompson's dancing away, he's a wicked dancer. This guy was such a mover, unbelievable. And I'm watching him, I thought, show off. But anyway, uh, so I'm looking, looking at Carl and uh, I clocked him and, uh, and that was it. And and so anyway, years later, when it comes to us fighting each other, he didn't see me, by the way. When it comes to fighting each other, I knew that was his bolt hole because she always says to me, "This guy always talks." So I'm thinking that's him. He's no idea. I know. I know where he goes. Carl's got a woman, and, and forgive me, I don't know his woman's name. I, I can't. I can't remember his woman's name, but I found out what it was at the time. Say, let's say her name was Cynthia. So we're sat at the press table for the press conference before the fight, at the week of the fight. And John Ingalls sat on my left, Brendan sat on the end. Um, uh, I'm sat down. Frank Warren's to sit in the middle of us. And then it's Carl Thompson, Billy Graham and whoever else he had sat on the table. Frank had not sat down yet. So we're all waiting. Everybody's milling around. So we're prepping to, to, to start the press conference. So I spoke loud enough for Carl to hear, but not, not, not loud enough to think I was talk- for him to think I was talking to him or for him to think I was talking so he could hear. And I said... Uh, there's a club around here. It's uh, Mr. Smith's Warrington. It's a wicked club. Yeah, and I met this I met this woman, I can't remember her name. Um, Cynthia. I think her name was Cynthia. And then and then and then I leant forward and then I dropped my tone. So Carl, I knew Carl heard Warrington, uh, Mr. Smith's. I knew he heard Cynthia. And but he didn't hear anything else because he didn't really say anything else. And I just leant forward. And I'm talking to John, and John like chuckled. And we sat back. And that was it. Now, I know that's planted a seed in his head. I know it has. His car sat back and his face was like thunder. So I saw him stood up and he went to the corner of the phone. And his head is nodding like one of those bubble dollies in a, in a car. He's, he's, he's really <laughs> arguing with somebody on the phone. And I thought, you just phoned your missus. And she's saying, I've no idea what you're talking about. Yes, he does. He knows your name. I'm, I'm, this is in my head. I'm thinking, I've got him. I've got him. And um, and then he came back, he was fuming, and he was sweating. So he just had a barney with his missus. Now he double <laughs> hates me. And to me, that was that was round one. That was round one. I had to get this man into a state of hatred. It's trainer Billy Graham from the Phoenix Camp in Manchester says that Thompson is seething inside, and that's just how he likes it. Look at this now when they get in the ring. The psychological battle goes on. Look at his face. Just look at his face, Carl Thompson. You are listening to Fight of My Life on TalkSport. Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver in the company of Johnny Nelson, remembering the fight where Johnny became WBO World Cruiserweight Champion when he took on Carl Thompson at the Derby Storm Arena back in 1999. So the mind games were all sorted out, and they worked beautifully for you. What about the training camp uh, for you, Johnny? Who were you sparring? Uh, I got many different sparring partners. I actually ended up sparring with a guy that um, ended up being an opponent down the line. It was somebody I first met when I first started going to Karlsruhe, Germany, and uh, and I was his sparring partner, him along with the German national team, uh, Rudy Gamay, and uh, he was based out there in, in Germany, and a guy called John Buster Keaton. And, and I made sure I got every angle covered. In my head... I couldn't see how Carl Thompson would could beat me. But in the papers and people around me, they were talking like, you've got it to do with this kid's going to do you. Even guys from my gym, 
a guy called Jonathan Thaxton and a heavyweight called uh, Pele Reed. They were ex-mixed martial arts guy, as Carl was. And I used to like training at city o'clock in the morning, go to the gym at like three o'clock in the morning. I'd do my run round there and then I'd go back in the gym, do my footwork and everything. And so as I was coming out, they were coming in. And I remember these two came in and, and you could see they'd been talking. They came up to me and said, uh, you know, he's tough, Johnny. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you think you can win? And these are guys out of our, my camp. And I'm like, it's so negative. I said, I don't see how I could lose. So these guys are like, you don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, I got out of the car, I got out of the gym, went in the car with Bren and we're driving up the road. And I said to Bren, Bren, am I missing something? He said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't know I could lose. I don't know how he could beat me. I don't understand what people are saying. And he kind of started laughing. He said, well, as long as you know that, don't worry about everybody else. And, and he was just so very matter-of-fact about it. He said, as long as you believe in each other, you don't have to tell anybody else. You've just got to have faith in yourself. And went, cool. I knew I ticked every single box. I trained right, slept right, run right, ate right, prepped right. I expected to win. And there's an arrogance about that. Uh, but I expected to win because I, I, I'd, I'd worn the T-shirt. You know, I'd, I'd done everything expected of anybody to get to that point there. The difference between fighting then and fighting for, against Carlos de Leon, I knew I was a man in a man's body, whereas fighting Carlos de Leon, I was a boy in a man's body. I knew I was prepared for the responsibility of being a champion. I knew what was expected of me. It wasn't just about that night. It was about the build-up to it through the fight, even the responsibility after, of, of being champion after it. So I understand what I was walking into. And I swore to myself, which is, I look back now, which is a bit crazy, I swore to myself, they will have to carry me out of this ring for me to not work out a winner. They will have to carry me out. Dominic Ingle, Brendan's son, I saw a headline saying Nelson said he's going to knock Carl Thompson out in five rounds. I didn't say that. Dominic said that. And so I said, don't, why have you done that? Again, Mental Warface said, look, if you keep drumming on about five rounds, he's going to be waiting for round five. So that means you've won round one, round two, round three, round four. Then he's waiting for the onslaught round five. If you don't get rid of round five, at least you're five rounds up. He said, so I want you to start saying it as well. Round five, he's getting me, you're getting rid of round five. He can't, he won't be able to help but preserve and wait until round five before he lets go. He might be pacing himself, thinking he'll get you later on, but just keep shouting round five. It gets you four rounds, five rounds in the bank. I, oh, I get it. So I was a great salesman because I sold it really well round five. And that was it. For Carl, I'd heard that friends of mine had been to spar with him, but I didn't hear that until after the fight. Those guys that went to spar with him, Afterwards, I thought, nah. Even Naz, Princess Seem Hamid, we were tight growing up. We were tight coming through. Even Naz, at that time, when he, he that around that time, he fell out with Frank Warren, he fell out with Brendan, and and we, and we fell out. And and he, he kind of endorsed Thompson's Corner. All the guys came in with t Princess Seem Hamid T-shirts. So they tried to ride on the back of the, the drama, what they thought was going on in the camp with Brendan, myself, and Frank Warren, and Naz. And so they thought, and, and I gather Carl refused to wear it because I don't think Naz was going to pay him. This is what I'm hearing. But he got everybody else to do it. So Naz thought he was doing my head in, endorsing those boys in fighting me. I thought, that's the worst thing you could have done, Naz, because I'm going to batter him even more. If you ever want to fire somebody up, that was the best way to fire me up. So when I saw them walk in, it just made me smile. I thought, all right, let's have this.
So all the preparation went really well. You were happy with uh, your camp and the training, and you were mentally in a brilliant place, Johnny, ahead of this fight. You had no doubt that you were going to beat Carl Thompson. But then you wake up on the day of the fight. Can those feelings change? Did you get a nanosecond of doubt? The reason why there wasn't a nanosecond of doubt is because I'd been there before. I'd been there with the Carlos de Leon fight when I bottled it on the day. I looked out and saw the crowd and saw people. I knew people from TV, salt stars and, and, and everything. And I bubbled, I bottled it. I know what that feeling's like. I knew that what, what having your head done in is like when I boxed um, James Wayne for the IBF title out there in the... In, uh, in America, I knew that mentally you have to be strong. You can't let what anybody says from outside the ring affect what you're doing inside the ring. So I knew I had ticked every box. I knew mentally I'd been through far too much experience in boxing to doubt myself. I understood. I didn't guess. I didn't wish. I didn't hope and keep my fingers crossed. I knew I had done everything. I knew I deserved to win. It was my right because I'd put the work in. So not for one second at all did I believe I was going to lose. And that, I, 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 if I'm honest, up until that point, that was the only time I'd ever felt like that getting in the ring. So remember, I'd been European champion t- uh, twice, 10 years apart. British champion held a Lonzo belt twice, uh, uh, 10 years apart. I'd done all of that, but I never went in there a fully confident individual. So the first time I ever felt that feeling and understood what that was, was when I got in there to box for the world title for the third and final time as far as I was concerned I didn't feel an an, an out and it's a great feeling it's a great feeling to walk in a in a room or to be prepared to not have any fear at all and that changed me totally inside and out that outside the ring because I realized we are our biggest enemy we are our biggest critic we are our biggest threat our mind is our biggest threat so once that penny had dropped I realized that the the that thin line between success and failure is so easy to step over, but it's so hard to explain to people what it is and how to get there. But once you're there, I thought, Eureka. I can never explain to you what, it's, what it is, but I can show you. I can show you how to get there if you, if you listen, but I couldn't put it in writing that, that, that how to get from failure to success. Johnny, you notoriously struggled with nerves. Now, I know Brendan Ingle was a great mentor and a, and a great guy that worked on the mind. How did you deal with this nerve situation? Because it was obviously evident that you'd got over that by the time you got to Cole Thompson. You boxed completely different. How did you deal with the nerves and, and, and how did Brendan Ingle change your mindset? Well, it was down to Brendan. Brendan always said, John, you've not got the confidence to match your ability. You're a mummy's boy. You need to move from your mother's house. You need to stand on your own through two feet and, and experience life. And I actually didn't appreciate it at the time when he said, I thought, what do you mean I'm a mummy's boy? Mom, do you know what you just said? <laughs> so so I kind of got it as time had gone on. And so so when I'd, I couldn't get any work this side of the world, and, I was a, and Brendan sent me away as a sparring partner by myself for months at a time, it makes you decide how much you want it and if you really want it. So remember, I'm in, in Germany. All over Germany, Hamburg, uh, Karlsruhe, uh, Frankfurt Order. Every part of Germany, I spent six or seven years there. France. So he sent me away. So, so there, being doing that by yourself, you know what it's like, Spence. On the day of a fight, you're, you're just in fight mode. And when you're always a sparring partner, you are fresh meat. 
So when you walk in the gym, everybody's looking at you thinking, I love him, I love him. So you're in fight mode every day. So that uncomfortable feeling becomes natural, becomes normal, becomes you get to know yourself. And if you really want it, you think, you know what? Yeah, I'm having this. If you didn't want it, you'll quit. You get a, you, you, you get on a plane and go home. The hardest thing about Germany was whenever you did that, and I saw many sparring partners do it, Henry Akinwandi, uh, he was one of them. Uh, you'd go out to Germany. It was horrible. Horrible little bed seat you was in. There was no TV. There was like army radio you could listen to. It was proper horrible. And all you were doing there is to, to train. For 22 hours a day, you were by yourself in the bed seat. Or you'd, you couldn't even go for a walk because it was a time in Germany, in East Germany, when they had those little yellow Travant cars and there weren't many black people in that part of Germany. So listen, stay, stay in your room. You know, don't come out, you know, it'd be dangerous. So you'd do that, you'd walk across to the gym and that, those two hours of the day were the only times you met people. And, and what they do is they'd fly you out, they'd put you on a ticket, two months. So they pick you up in, uh, in, in Berlin at the airport, drive you all the way down to East, East Germany on the border of Poland and dump you in the hotel. Now, if you wanted to leave early, remember you didn't get paid until it was time to go home. If you wanted to leave early, you had to sneak out and do a runner because they weren't going to bring you back and then find your way from East Germany all the way to Berlin and then when you get to Berlin you've got to pay to change your ticket it was one of those flight tickets and and, and you had to do it and you lost all the money you'd done so if you're going to jump ship you're going to jump ship early while you're losing money and it's going to cost you and I've seen a lot of Americans do it I've seen Brits do it uh, leave early I've seen spine partners getting battered every day but I knew if I did that if I quit it would affect every aspect of my life, be it relationship-wise, job-wise, socially, uh, mentally. I'd be a quitter. And so I had to stick it out. I had to know I stuck it out. And each time they said, you're coming back, I say, I'm coming back. It was horrible at first, trust me. It wasn't nice at all. But it was the best thing I ever did because I even bump into those guys now and they say, uh, uh, we shouldn't have let you through our doors. You know, the German guys, I used to spar with Henry Matt and Axel Schultz. We shouldn't let you come in because I learned so much about discipline, what it takes. So even though my style might be unorthodox, it might be whatever, once I knew I was fighting, once that penny had dropped, I knew I had to do everything to prepare right for a fight. So it wasn't just about training yourself physically. Mental training is the most important thing. So, so, so what I do is I try and put myself in uncomfortable situations to find comfort. So there used to be a graveyard and some um, some woodland near the gym in Winkerbank. And to try and get over my fear of nerves, I had to analyse and understand what it was. And that's why I know we are our own biggest enemy. Fear is actually, it's a state of mind. So I drive to the gym, three o'clock in the morning, when it's pitch black. There's a woodland called Woollywood Bottom near Winkerbank. You had to run through the woods for about probably a mile, a mile and a half before you got to the golf course at the side. And I thought, I'm doing that run. Now, I was proper panicking, thinking, oh, my God. this is the f-. I remember the first day. I thought, I've got to do this. And get it in my head to get comfortable with being nervous. I had to understand the difference between nerves and fear. And so I got to the woodland. I stood there thinking, come on, John, we can do this. Now nah, we'll go on the road. Come on, Johnny, we can do this. It's three o'clock in the morning. Big black guy stood there with his hood up, all masked up and everything. It's freezing in winter. Can you imagine me stood there, swaying left and right, road, bushes, road, bushes. And I thought, nah, Johnny, you've got to do it. Boom. So now I'm running through the woods. And I'm, you, you, you're running on nervous energy. 
But then I'm thinking, hold on a minute, what are you actually scared of? Because if anybody's in the woods here and they're going to get you, they're going to see you running through the woods at three o'clock in the morning and they're going to think, what the hell is that? So why wouldn't they be scared of you? I can remember laughing to myself as I'm running through the woods thinking, idiot, you're right. So then I thought, well, why, why would you be scared? Why would people not fear you? And these, these are little things that you've got to build that seed. To, to Little things might work, might not work. You've got to build that seed in your head to think, I'm actually more, I'm of more value than people, than I think. I've got to see what Brendan sees. I've got to see that, that commitment Brendan had in me to stick with me. I've got to see what he sees. Then eventually, once I started to understand, it's, I'm not scared, it's nerves. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And tonight, Frank Warren proudly presents the War of the Roses and World Championship Boxing. All the talk at press conferences will count for nothing now. Fights are not won at press conferences, or very rarely anyway. This is Talk Sport, the fight of my life. Spencer Oliver and Russ Williams were in the company of Johnny Nelson talking about the fight of his life the night that he became... WBO cruiserweight champion of the world, the Storm Arena in Derby. Uh, take us into your dressing room, Johnny, b- before the fight. What was a typical Nelson dressing room like, and was it any different for this world title fight? The dressing room, were, it was... So when I first got into boxing, Harold Graham was the man. Harold Graham was... You'd, you'd kind of pick up habits, what he had or what he didn't have. And when he was in the dressing room, he was very quiet, didn't talk to anybody. It was like Linford Christie, like running. You see Linford, he's like he's running, he's like running from fear. His eyes are wide and, he, and he'd work on fear. He'd work on that. And Harold used to be like that, very quiet. It wasn't very jovial. Then along came Naz. And Naz brought the atmosphere in the dressing room, what we had in the gym. 
And when you're in the gym, that's when you produce cameos of brilliance. So as far as I was concerned, I'm going to be as relaxed and as happy as I am in the gym, in the dressing room. So it was music, it was everything going. But now the difference is I'm a completely different beast because I know what I'm capable of doing. So I'm not complacent. I know every, all, all, my, all, all my chips are in order. I'm ready. And so even in the dressing room, anybody's there and Brendan... You know, he's, 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 he's playing it well. He's talking to me, bandaging my hands and still controlling, puppeteering everybody. He's telling everybody to go all over the place, get the water, you get this, you get that. Make sure you sat ringside. So he pl- pl- plant a couple of us at ringside just so we can shout instructions up if he gets kicked out of the corner. And I was sat there and I knew I was cold enough. I knew I was mentally on it. And I knew on this occasion, I wanted to be the last person that walked out of the dressing room. I don't know why. I thought, I'm going to be the last person walking out. So I knew once I put my boots on and put my my guard, my protector on and my shorts on, it was fight time. The silly thing I did, and we all have silly habits, I put on an invisible coat of armour. <laughs> I stepped into it. Uh, I put it on. Uh, and I put it on. That worked for me. And I did it every fight after that. Uh, I stepped in and, and, and put my invisible coat of armour on. I actually went through the process of getting my hands like I'm putting it on. And and you'd see Brent, and Brendan was the only one that clocked me doing it. And so I'd put it on and, and then I'd put my protector on. I put two protectors on. And that was a tip from Chris Eubank. And Chris said, always wear two protectors. So I'd have a cricket cup and I'd have my boxing protector. Put those on. So as I'm putting these on, I felt gladiatorial. I thought, you are going into battle here. This is it, Johnny. You've done all the things expected of you and I'm going through this rigmarole for the first time that night you got into the dressing room I tidied all my clothes put my shoes down put my clothes there put my bag there put my bottles there and I, I stood there and when Brendan said come on we're rolling I said Brendan I want to go last and Brendan knew when he was in, in, in sort of a zone he knew he didn't question it he knew he went no problem and they all stepped out and I turned around took a big deep breath as I'm looking at the dressing room and that was it. So the second I had stepped out of the dressing room, I knew my life was going to change from that day on. My life was never going to be the same again once I stepped out. We get into the ring and you see Cole Thompson standing in the opposite corner. What was you feeling right then, mate? I, I knew when Carl was there, I didn't. I saw that guy that I used to be a fan of. I saw that warrior. I knew what he was capable of doing. But I also knew that I was cleverer than him. I might not have been a better fighter than him. I was a better boxer. I might not have been as mentally courageous as him, but I was I was craftier than he was. So I knew that I, as a chess player, I'd set him up. He was exactly how I wanted him to be. Because he responded to me saying, you're not going to knock me out in five rounds by saying no chance. He responded to that. Uh, I knew looking at him, and, and I saw his corner, and the funny thing was, because um, uh, one or two other people that were in the camp, Billy Graham, he admitted it afterwards, and I'd heard this rumour. Billy Graham said to Cole, you will just box Johnny Nelson a hundred times and I'll beat you 99 of them. Make sure today's that one time he doesn't. So I knew, I knew they, 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 that I was a handful. I, I knew that. So when Carl was there, I was, I, was, I was cold, I was calculated. I knew for the fact this man hated me. I wanted to poke him like a dog on a chain to throw everything at me because I thought, you are not going to hurt me. 
we had some rounds ahead of you. Let's go round one, shall we? You started really fast, which wasn't really like you as a boxer. What was the game plan here that you and Brendan and the team have put together? Well, our, our gym had the reputation of being runners, boxing on the back foot. The joke was you walk into the Ingle gym and you start walking in backwards. We didn't have the respect of boxing purists because they thought our style was, was too negative. But Brendan, Brendan said boxing is, the art of boxing is hit and not be hit. Be sharp, be smart, be on it. So I know in Carl's head, if he thinks about the guy that he's seen boxing before, if he keeps pressuring me and working me down and making me work at his pace, I get tired halfway through the fight. I've seen his fights. He usually comes on strong the second half of the fight. So I wanted to make him be thinking about me more than anything. Thompson from Manchester have to take punches maybe on the way and it's a sharp start this from a very confident Johnny Nelson and Thompson just looking a little bit befuddled early on here I was surprised at how hard he couldn't punch so I'm thinking I thought he punched harder than this so I don't know if you elevate yourself to a level of, of, of I don't know what it is but I thought he can't punch that hard or maybe he just not hit me in the right place so when he was letting the shots go and I was stood there I'm thinking I don't want to get too comfortable doing this because it's far too easy. I don't want to get complacent. So I boxed four. Uh, and so I met him in the center and just said, I will, I will stand there and give you this back. And so he'd be so consumed in thinking about me, he's forgetting about what he's got to do. I know when he's got to go back to the corner, Billy Graham's going to give him a mouthful, try and get him back on track. And this is exactly what Brendan told me to get into his head, Johnny. You go out there and meet him. You know, and I can remember slapping him and get out there. I was Brendan's soldier that night. You definitely got into Cole Thompson's head in the build-up to the fight, and you definitely got into his head in that first round, Johnny. As you said, you'd done something totally different. You met him head-on, and that messed his game plan up totally. And you could see that as the rounds were unfolding. Round two, Cole Thompson kept trying to push forward, but you would be popping him off, and then you'd stand and you'd, and you'd meet him in the middle again. And it really did seem to mess his head up, didn't it? He got through to round three was exactly the same. And round four was the breaking point when you landed that big right hand. Cole Thompson goes over. Good left hand from Nelson. Oh, a right hand! Dex Thompson in the fourth round. Breakthrough for Johnny Nelson. He's up quickly, Thompson. He'll have to take a man at 3-8. Did you feel you won the fight right then? No, I didn't feel I won the fight that round because I didn't hit him hard enough. But I know I was fast enough, sharp enough and accurate enough to knock him out. So that told me I'd won, but I didn't think it was right then. Because there was nothing in the shot. It was a quick right hand, do it, boom, turn it into, a, uh, turn it into a, a sharp hook. And Carl dropped. He was gone. I thought, is that it? That's all you've got is that you can't take that. And I'm surprised I remember doing it. I said, I'm going to, as we were talking again it, before the fight in the press conference, I said, I'm going to knock you down and do the Ali shuffle above your head just to get him angry. So as he went down, unfortunately, the camera panned on Carl there. I put my hands in the air, did an Ali shuffle looking at him. And the referee pushed me to the neutral corner. I wanted him to look up and see me doing that. And he'll think, he told me he was going to do this. It was, it, boxing car was more of a mental battle than a physical battle. And that to me was the most important thing. It was mental warfare. So once I did everything I'd said I was going to do, it was like everything was coming to, to fruition. The dream was coming true. And he's thinking, oh my goodness, he said he was going to do this. So, and what I'd do is it was like the foxtrot, I'd read box. I'd be, I'd be boxing uh, on the back foot, boxing him. Then I'd step, step. I wouldn't, I wouldn't run. I'd step to the left, step to the right, step back, step southpaw, step orthodox. 
Because I can do both. I can box Southpaw and Orthodox. So I've got to keep him thinking, keep confusing him, keep frustrating him. So when he went down, I knew he's going. He's going. But not yet. And, 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 and I just thought, but you are mine. Well, you did get him with another one of those. And that was in the next round, round five. Thompson kept trying to push forward. You done that little shuffle again, Johnny. You threw a big right uppercut, followed by a left hook, another right hand. And the referee, Paul Thomas, jumps in to stop Thompson from taking any more punishment. Dazzling combinations. And he's going to stop it. It's over in the fifth round. Nelson lays the ghost to rest. Thompson protects bitterly, bitterly at the stoppage. And maybe it was a bit contentious too, but Johnny Nelson becomes the WBO Cruiserweight champion and Carl Thompson is still protesting bitterly about that. He felt it was a really controversial stoppage. Did you feel that? I I think Paul Thomas took the pleasure away from me and I was a little frustrated because I thought I've not heard him enough. So when the, when when he jumped in, I couldn't understand why he did it because Carl was all over the place. He he, he was going to put his left foot down, but his right foot moved. His right foot forward, but he moved his left foot. He was discombobulated. He was all over the place. He looked staggered. The shots that were just hitting him, they were hitting his neck, and his head was wobbling, hitting his head. So and it was just winging past him. So from where the referee was, he could see this body falling forward because that's what it looked like. He was falling forward, and it was a matter of time before he fell into one of those shots. Now, the referee's got to do his job. The referee's got to think he's got to do it at the right time, stop at the right time. So in hindsight, yeah, we can all argue and complain about it. But in reality, if Carl of the Warthog fell onto a shot and I hit him, I know I could hit, that could have ended his career. So, so the referee's in a hard position. Sure. I personally would have preferred to let him go on. I personally wanted him to go on because I wanted the pleasure. Really, Remember, I've not hit him hard enough. That I think, yes, that's my shot. In the whole fight, I'd not him hard enough to think you, you can't hold my shot. But so even when he went down, I thought, nah, I've got harder than that. Even when the referee jumped in, he was falling into the shots. His legs were all over the place, all over the place coming through. So when Paul jumped in and stopped it, and Carl went mad. We've got a real controversy there. Look, he's screaming at Frank Warren, Carl Thompson. The sense of achievement must have been amazing when Paul Thomas raised your arm and there you were, Johnny Nelson from Sheffield. After everything you'd been through, the WBO Cruiserweight Champion of the World. How did that feel? Not what I thought it was, if I'm honest with you. The best thing about it was that I'd brought credit back to Brendan and his system because when I boxed the Leon, I brought shame on the gym. Shame on boxing in Sheffield. Maybe shame worldwide on boxing because they thought this guy is supposed to be defend uh, a British fighter. So, but Brendan's system worked, and and so I felt happier for him than I did for myself because when I won, I thought, "Is that it?" You know. So, and I, I can remember Dominic getting down the floor saying, "Get up! What does this?" I'm okay, okay, okay. Stood up, stood there, and I'm supposed to be cool, like like yeah, I've done this. But I felt so happy for Brendan. Because the criticism this man had had from the amateurs through to the professionals and all of a sudden he found, you know, I was, I was just a lump of coal. You know, what, this kid's rubbish. 
and he rubbed me up and made me into gold. This was your night for boxing redemption, wasn't it? You've laid a few ghosts to rest there, and they've been around for seven, eight years. This, for me, was just to show that Brennan Ingle's system works. I'm a product of St. Thomas's Boxing Club. I entered the gym with nothing, no natural talent, no natural raw ability. I entered the gym with nothing. I'm, I'm a product of the gym. I am the gym. There is just a little twist that some of our listeners might not be aware of that will give an indication how upset Carl Thompson was <laughs> at the end of that fight. You've gone back into the dressing room with the belt. You're the world champion. All of a sudden, a couple of members of his team come in and take the belt. Yeah. Well, it actually started before that because when I was ringside doing the interview before the cameras came on, there was a guy shouting a whole of abuse and he did a gun sign to me. And I'm like, I cussed him out, basically gave him a few choice words back. I didn't know he was. You know, he's obviously one of Carl's fans and supporters. Then I went then then I went into the dressing room afterwards and Carl sent a couple of his boys in to say Carl wants his belt back. And I'm like, what? Excuse my French. I said, tell Carl to kiss my ass. It's mine. And so, so they're stood there. It's like a Mexican standoff. So they're in the dressing room and the belt's in front of me. I've just beat their mate up. So they're thinking, do we get the belt or not? Yeah, but that's his belt. And they said the same. I said, time to kiss my ass. He's not having it. So Brendan, ever the, the diplomat, he said, Johnny, Johnny, it's all right. Let him take it. It doesn't mean anything. I'm like, Brent, I've just won that. Let him take it. You'll get another. And I'm like, looking at us, and say, you're joking. And and I, honestly, I, I had the belt in my hand. I had it in the dressing room. He felt so sweet. And I thought, I can't do it. I can't give it him. So I didn't give it him. <laughs> and Brendan, Brendan's like, I can see Brendan's trying his hardest to to di- divert World War Three because Carl's got some tasty friends outside. I went, no, Brendan, I can't. I can't. I just couldn't let go. Uh, consequently, that guy that was giving me the gun side ringside, I got a call from Maurice Corf uh, the week of the fight. Congratulate me, well, well, the Maurice Corf was from Manchester, and he said, Johnny, do me a favor. He said, uh, don't come to Manchester for a bit. I went, what? Why? He said, that guy at ringside, yeah, he said, he's going to kill you. And I'm like, shut up, idiot, said Johnny. Listen to me, I'm not joking. Do not come to Manchester because he's going to shoot you. You will get shot. That's what he does. Brendan, you've had a, a, a one or two dodgy ones lately. MBE as well yesterday. is some weekend, Brendan. MBE, and let me say this to all the people that's watching. Frank Warren made it happen for us, and we stand beside him. Yes, thanks. Frank Warren done the job, and it's loyalty. Johnny Nelson said he'd stop him on five rounds. I says, take the sting out of him. He took the sting out of him. Then he was going to knock him out, and it was better the referee took him out of there before Johnny destroyed him. You're listening to Fight of My Life here on Talk Sport. Spencer Oliver and Russ Williams talking to Johnny Nelson. And the fight we've just been through was the day that Johnny became WBO cruiserweight champion of the world, defeated in five rounds by a TKO, and uh, still has the belt, of course, Carl Thompson of Manchester, formidable fighter himself. So feeling great about being a world champion. You actually ran up, Johnny, 14 title defences over six years. You retired an undefeated champion, which I'm sure you're enormously proud of. How how did you deal with that retirement, though? Um, well, first of all, I actually didn't realise it set a record of defences for the cruiserweight title. I think it still stands as well. 
and um, and so it, it was a pr- that's very proud because uh, again for a kid that had 13 amateur fights to to finish off setting a record of world title defenses again I was proud of, of being associated to Brendan and through Brendan that happened so he, they, people have got to give him the credit um, retirement was the the hardest thing ever because when I when I did retire it wasn't my choice so so my last fight was in Italy and Rome so in my head I thought I'm going to have this fight then I'm going to box uh, Enzo Macrinelli and then that's me done and the reason why I wanted to box Enzo Macrinelli so hard is because the last time the ITV viewers saw me and Enzo was popular on ITV because of the, his success the last time they saw me was when I failed against Carlos de Leon so for the casual audience, if I was boxing on Enzo Macronelli on ITV, they'd be like, oh, I remember him back in 1990. Oh, my God, is he still boxing? I wanted them to see that and then see the improvement of what I did and what I'd done and what I'd become. And that's what I wanted. So I really wanted that fight. And in my head, I'd not told Brendan, not told anybody. I thought, then I'm going to do a speech, say, I'm done, I'm out of there. And the reason was, was because it got to a stage where I no longer... That fear had gone, that, 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 that anticipation had gone what you needed. So it'd be raining outside and I'd be happy to stay in bed and not feel guilty uh, instead of going for a run. So I knew once I got to that, I'd become complacent. So I shouldn't be in the ring because I'd lose to somebody I shouldn't lose to. I find it very hard, if I'm honest, I find it very hard uh, because when I snapped my patella tendon in the week before I boxed uh, Macronelli, I was gutted. I was absolutely heartbroken. And the doctor... Uh, when it snapped, I was sparring. I just switched from southpaw for orthodox. Brendan said it was a Friday. Brendan said, Johnny, that's it. I said, Brendan, just one more round, one more round. I switched from southpaw to or- for orthodox. We heard a snap, and we thought it was a floorboard. It was actually my knee that had snapped. And so when my knee had snapped, I was down on the floor. And I said, oh, Brendan, I've just pulled it. I'll just go home, I'll wrap it up, and what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll get it sorted out for Monday. We'll see what we're like on Monday. Brendan wouldn't have it. He said, come on. You know, I took me to the hospital. The doctor in the hospital, oh, what a swine. He said, he just said to me, um, your career's over. You'll never box again. I was heartbroken, devastated, devastated because this is what I'd done all my life. And so I, was, I thought, you know, I mean, I'm not listening to you. You know, I went mad in that hospital. That's a different, that's another, that's another program. Anyway, I got, the, uh, my leg was done, everything sort, was sorted out, uh, I had the operation, so I was out of the picture for a, a good few months, and I was training to, to get back to fight Enzo, because he was, he'd become the interim champion, and I knew it was just far too painful, in my back, in my knees, in my hips, because I'd had so much time off, and, and the worst thing was having to publicly say it, myself so and in my head that little voice was saying you're done Johnny you can't do this I'm like nah I'm doing this I tried to train twice as hard and you know your injury it just took ages and ages the day I had to say it out, out loud I was in pieces and once you say it out loud it's out there you can never bring those words back in uh, and that's the time I broke down and I thought didn't come out of my house didn't say it. it was the hardest time ever because the one of one of the things I'd miss, apart from the the banting the gym and and actually being champion, was I knew I'd not see Brendan every day, and that's what I said then, because I'd seen this guy every day of my life from the age of fifteen. So all of a sudden, along with not boxing anymore, meant I wouldn't see him every day, at least twice a day, and so I I, I wasn't sure which one was the most upsetting, and so that's what it got it 
proper broke me. And people don't understand, when fighters or sportsmen or women retire from their sport, it takes them five years at least to get it out of the system. At least. Uh, especially fighters. And, and that's why you'll hear them about drink, drugs, women, conflicts with the law. Because they're looking for that buzz, that thing that, that, that's missing. I put it down to it's like somebody stealing a day out of the week. But you've no one to blame. So can you imagine... Friday's gone missing. You'd be like, it's Thursday, now it's Saturday. Who do I blame? It's really odd. You know something's not right, something's missing, but you don't know who to blame or what it is. And that had gone out of my life, and it was the worst, the lowest time ever. And I mean, it was just, it was a, it was, it was the worst time. It was horrible. You had an unbelievable boxing career. You've had to retire because the body was packing up. It happens to a lot of fighters. But you changed your attention. You started working in the media. You're doing a tremendous job on Sky. Johnny, if there's anything you could change in your career, what would it be? Nothing. <laughs> I won't change anything. I'm, I'm glad I went through everything I went through. I'm glad it it because it, it made me the person I am today. It put me in a position where I can actually sit on TV and talk about our sport and nobody can ever question me, what do you know? I, I like it's now and again where kids say, have you boxed before? Because they don't know. But I, I understand what you see in the ring. I understand body language. I understand when fighters are there. I understand when fighters shout loud or quiet. I understand it all. I've seen it all. So, so I think the experiences I went through, good and bad, I needed them to get wisdom. And that wisdom wasn't just to be a world champion and defend it so many times. That wisdom was to, 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 to be able to analyse and pass on and, 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 and formalise what I see. So I know it doesn't matter if my opinions are wrong or right in regards to who's going to win a fight or not. But I know I am one of the most qualified people to talk about our sport because I have ticked every box from being a loser to being a winner. And I've done everything in boxing. And then one thing you can't buy, borrow, or pretend to have is experience. And that's what I've got. This has been Fighting My Life with Johnny Nelson on Talk Sport, Russ Williams and Spencer Oliver. Absolutely delighted, Johnny, that you've been able to spend some time with us and we can relive one of the greatest, if not the greatest, moment of your career. Great to hear your honesty and your memories as well. Uh, keep listening to this space on Talk Sport. Plenty more boxing life stories on the way. But from Johnny, Spencer and myself, until next time, it's goodbye. Time, it's goodbye. Time, it's goodbye. Time, it's goodbye. Time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe 
ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.